Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16, on page 774. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not, us, lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors and elders here, and thrilled to be here with you this morning on this wet, Jonah-appropriate morning. So we are back in the book of Jonah. I'll recap a little bit. Last week, we we started the series, and we saw that Jonah is uh, running from God. God tells him, go to Nineveh, which is a pagan city. Jonah is a prophet of God, an Israelite, and God tells him, go to Nineveh and preach my word to them. Jonah suspects that because God is gracious and merciful, he might forgive the pagans in Nineveh, and so he runs. He just runs away. He, He books a passage on a ship. That's going to Tarshish, which is exactly the opposite direction from where God is calling him. He's trying to get away as far as he can from God's presence, which, of course, makes no sense. But that is how we usually sin. It makes no sense, but we do it anyway. And so he's running, and now we find him on this ship, and we find him in the midst of the storm. I'd like us to look at Jonah and keep looking at Jonah as somebody we can identify with, especially if most of us here were church people, Bible-believing people, and this is Jonah. He's a prophet 
and yet he has a very difficult time understanding and accepting God's grace and extending it to others. And that is our problem as well many times. I think many of us identify with that. Jonah has a very dark heart, and so do a lot of us as well. What we see today, and this is very, very exciting, is that as Jonah is running away, God is running after him. God is pursuing Jonah, even though this rebellious, disobedient prophet is running as far away as he can, God continues to pursue him and meets him in the midst of the storm. So my outline this morning is very simple. I'd like us to consider the storm itself. Secondly, I'd like us to consider the ship and specifically people on that ship and how they are affected by the storm, including Jonah, of course. And lastly, I'd like us to consider the Savior who calms the storm. So the storm, the ship, and the Savior. Nicely alliterated for your listening pleasure. Let's start with the storm. Jonah's sin of rejecting God. He rejects God's call, he rejects his will, he runs, and that brings about a storm. I love the way one of the church fathers describes it. He describes this, what happens to Jonah. He says, Jonah surely teaches us that the sea and stars are moved under God's control. By vainly seeking to flee from God, the controller of all things, whom none can escape, he aroused the anger of both sky and sea. Nature, which belongs to the Almighty Lord, realized that Jonah was revolting, that it was afraid, that it was afraid to play conspirator to transporting the guilty man safely through its domain. It chained the runaway with winds and waves." It's just a cool image of the whole nature responding to Jonah's sin, and the whole nature being disturbed by his disobedience, and the whole nature acting on behalf of God to bring him back, to chain him, as it were, with winds and waves. And we know, don't we, that any sin creates a disturbance. God's creation, including us, was designed to function not under sin, but under God's rule. And so whenever sin is involved, whenever disobedience, rebellion, anything that is against God's will is involved, creation is disturbed. Our lives are disturbed. Each act of rebellion deepens its dysfunction and contributes to its disintegration. You know what I mean, right? Don't you? <laughs> Like me, I'm sure that you too have been in a storm or two of your own making. Anybody? Anybody's been in a storm that you were responsible for? You made the mess, and now you see the disturbance of your life, the disturbance of all creation, and it's as if the sea itself is now chasing you. It's stormy because of our sin. Now, we know that, that a natural consequence of sin is dysfunction. Of course, we know that. Everyone has experienced that, and some of us are right in the midst of it right now. But it's also crucial for us to see here that the storm is not only a natural consequence of sin, but there is an active agent here. Somebody is sending the storm. Somebody is responsible for this storm. So who is it? Look at verse 4. 
It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. It's the Lord who hurls this wind. The Lord is causing the storm as he is chasing Jonah. This is crucial for us to understand that sin does not only carry natural consequence, and you can say, well, I messed up, now my life is a mess. That's true. That is true. But also within all of that, God is involved. Within all of that, God is active. And we see here that it is God who sends the storm into Jonah's life. And the question then is, why? Why is God doing that? Why is Jonah trying to get as far away from God? He says he's running from the presence of God. Why is it that God catches up to him and sends this storm into his life? Is it only to show that God is the boss here, that Jonah needs to submit to him? It is only to punish Jonah? Is it only to humble him so he would finally do what God asked him to do? Those are all legitimate answers. But the main answer, the main reason why God is sending the storm into Jonah's life is because God wants to reclaim Jonah's heart. God is going after Jonah and is going to use whatever means necessary to get Jonah back. Matthew Henry said, It is a great mercy. It is a great mercy to be reclaimed and called home when we go astray, though it be by a tempest, by a storm. It's a great mercy that God doesn't let us get away, that God pursues us and that God changes us and that God sends these difficult things into our lives so He can reclaim our heart. Jonah runs. He rejects God's call. He rebels against God's will, but God keeps pursuing him. And God recruits the wind and the waves to turn Jonah's heart back toward himself. This is where we find one of the great paradoxes of Scripture. And if you're familiar with Scripture, there are many paradoxes. There are many tensions. There are many two-sided ideas in Scripture. This is one of them. That the disturbance clearly caused by Jonah's sin is at the same time the discipline of the Lord designed to heal him of that sin. Do you see what I'm saying? The mess that he made, it's his own doing. He, he is responsible for his sin. And yet, God is using that and God is causing the storm as he's disciplined for Jonah to heal him of that disobedience and sin. In running away from God, Jonah was looking for peace. He's thinking, if I can get far away enough from God, I will be at peace. Because he doesn't want to go on this mission God is sending him. But he found himself in the midst of the storm. And yet that storm was sent by God to bring him peace. Those are crazy ideas of Scripture. What seemed good to Jonah, he thought it was good to run away from God, that, that, that he would be doing a good thing for himself. In fact, it brings harm into his life. And yet, in that harm that is brought into his life by his sin, God intends to bring about Jonah's good. By avoiding this dangerous mission, Jonah sought safety in the faraway Tarshish. But he finds himself close to death at sea. 
And yet, all the while, he was completely safe under God's disciplining hand. These are great truths that if we apply them to our lives, they can transform how we see suffering and hardship. God sent a storm, but God committed to keep Jonah safe in that storm. Our God often afflicts with the goal of healing. Our God often hides life in death. So God deals with us. So on the one hand, you see that Jonah is he's, he's running away. He's causing all the trouble, all the dysfunction, and yet at the same time, in the midst of that dysfunction, God is pursuing him with the goal of bringing peace and goodness into his life. Are you in the midst of a storm this morning? Maybe a storm of your own making. Maybe you look at your life and you say, yeah, the decision I made then, or the pattern that I have cultivated has now brought this dysfunction into my life. My life is a mess now because of me. Because I made bad decisions, and I pursued sin, and I disobeyed God, and I treated that person poorly. Or maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, yeah, my life is a mess and I'm in the midst of a storm, but it's, it's not my own making. It's not my doing. Someone else has caused that. There are people in my life who have brought this dysfunction and disintegration into my life. Now, many of us are in one or the other category. So I'd like to tell you this morning that you need to be encouraged based on our text this morning. You need to be encouraged that as much as this storm that you may be in, as much as it may be directly connected to your own sin, it is God who hurled that great wind into your life. And his great purpose is to bring you back to himself and to restore you and to reclaim you for himself. It's a great paradox that in sin, in dysfunction, in destruction, God is bringing life. And God is working his healing purposes for you. Now, this is how deep God's mercy runs. You know, our title is maybe a little cheesy, Exploring the Depths of God's Mercy, right? We wanted to put at least one water reference in the, in the title. But this is exactly what we're doing. We're exploring just how deep does God's mercy run? How far will he go to get me? How much does he care for me? Will he hurl a great wind to bring me back? What's the answer? Yeah. Yeah, he would, and he did, and he does. I mean, all of our stories, we can all talk about our situations in life where God has done something painful, difficult, and yet now we realize that this was his purpose to bring me back, to change me, to transform me, even in the midst of the storm, because his grace comes very often in the midst of our storms. Now, let's talk about the ship. The storm that's caused by God in response to Jonah's sin with the purpose of bringing him back. But what is happening on this ship as they're experiencing this, this incredible storm? Well, first, let's acknowledge that the obvious, I think, that the rest of the people on this ship are simply caught in Jonah's storm. They have nothing to do with what Jonah did, right? They're just mariners, they're, you know, they're sailors. They're just going about their business. They're, they're on this, this voyage to, to Tarshish. 
That's what they do. And yet they get this guy, right? The guy who turns out running away from God. And because of that guy, now they are in the midst of the storm that God sent to discipline Jonah. A French theologian, Jacques Ellul, said, Christians have to realize that they hold in their hands the fate of their companions in adventure. Christians need to realize that they hold in their hands the fate of their companions in adventure. I think he's exaggerating a bit. I think God is sovereign. I think God controls fates of people. But it is true, and I think he is right in that, that, that our presence and our responsiveness to God's will have an influence on people around us. The way I live my life affects other people around me, of course. We're not isolated individuals. What I do, my decisions, my ambitions, my emotions, my relationship with God, all of that affects other people around me. Now, there's a fascinating parallel in Scripture with another storm in the Bible. We're looking actually at three storms. This is the second. In Acts 27, if you want to look there with me, Acts 27, Paul, this is the Apostle Paul, he is, he's been imprisoned and he's transported as a prisoner to Rome. Now he's responding to God's call that comes through imprisonment, comes through this storm, right, to go to Rome and actually preach the gospel to Caesar, to the emperor. And so they're in the midst of this awful storm. Now, they left too late. Paul told them, don't leave now. You should stay in winter here. But they didn't listen. And so now they're caught in this tremendous storm. This is Acts 27, verse 21. And so finally, Paul gets up, and, and they're, they're, you know, they're just struggling, and they feel like everybody's going to die. Nobody's eating. They're throwing cargo over, overboard. And Paul gets up and says, men... You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Amazing story, right? They're, they're on this ship. Again, the other people on the ship have nothing to do with Paul and his mission and his life. They're just doing their jobs. And yet because of Paul and because of his mission, because of his obedience to God's call to go and preach the gospel to Caesar in Rome, all of those people are going to be saved. And Paul says, don't worry about it. We're going to lose the ship, but we're not going to lose any men. Because God is going to make sure that I get to Rome safely, and he has granted me all of your lives. Meaning he, he was praying for them. Meaning he cared enough for them and about them to pray so God would spare their lives. Completely opposite is happening in Jonah, isn't it? Who cares for the lives of people in Jonah? The captain. Not Jonah. Jonah's asleep. But it is his disobedience, it is his rejection of God's call that actually puts everybody in danger on that ship. The question we have to be asking ourselves 
is what is happening to other people in your life, other people around you, other people on the same voyage that you are on? What is happening to them because of you? Are you a Paul who's been praying for their lives and now their lives have been spared because of your prayers and because of your obedience, because of your, your pursuit of God? Or are their lives now put in danger because you have been disobedient and rebellious and, and running from God? Friends, do not underestimate the power of your presence. There are many decisions made based on how you live by other people. There are many perceptions formed based on what you portray to other people. Other people get caught in your storms. It is always surprising to me how little we think about our decisions affecting other people. Somebody who's contemplating divorce is only thinking, usually in my experience, is only thinking about their relationship with their spouse and saying how good it would be to be free from that dysfunction. What about the children? I speak as a child of divorce, greatly affected by my parents' decision. I don't think they were thinking about me when they were making that decision, but I got caught up in their storm. Somebody who is cultivating an addiction to pornography and refusing to address it, refusing to admit it, doesn't think how that is affecting their marriage, their children, their relationships with other people. But other people get caught in those storms. When a person continues to persist in sin, it is not only to their detriment, it is also to the detriment of other people. On the other hand, our lives could bring life to other people. We can live in a way that actually preserves the lives of other people, that, that makes God spare their lives on, based on our prayers, based on our lives. We don't even realize that our greed, our arrogance, our bigotry, our racism, our materialism turn people away from Jesus. And by turning people away from Jesus, we're turning them away from the Son of the living God who alone has the words of eternal life. So we're basically saying, I have this life that you can have, but because of me, you will not get it. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating, friends. I know God is sovereign. I know that. And God will get through that and will talk about it as we go on in the sermon. But we need to take that responsibility. And we need to say, am I a Jonah? on whose account the ship is almost ready to break up and people are scrambling while I'm asleep and they're in this great storm that is my storm, it's not their storm, but they're caught in it? Or am I a Paul who's praying on whose behalf the lives of people are spared because he needs to pursue the mission that God gave him? Let me make it a little bit, a little bit more relevant to us as a church. And by the way, Rose Shannon told me I can push you more today, so... If you have any issues, you can talk to Rose. She encouraged me that you can step on more toes today, so <laughs> I'm ready. If our church, if we were just done with worship today and we just closed our doors and we said, we're not going to do church anymore, we're going to sell the building, would our community notice our absence? 
What our community, not just church people, I'm talking about our community, what our community misses. Would they, would they say it was good when they were here and they brought life to our community and they did things that were beneficial to us and somehow what they had communicated to us, regardless of whether they believe what we believe or not, but would they consider us as a life-giving presence in this community? What happens during this storm? What happens to Jonah? There's two things here. Number one, his identity is revealed. After the mariners cast lots and figure out that Jonah is the cause of the storm, they ask him in verse 8, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is not good news to the mariners. Because he's saying, I'm a Hebrew, I belong to a God who made the sea, which is what you have a problem with right now. He also made the land. So there's no way you're getting out of this situation unless you deal with my God. And they kind of freak out. Because they think, Oh, this is the guy who had told us he was running away from his God. And now he tells us who his God is. Turns out this God created everything. And this is the God who sends the storm. And it's because of him that we are about to die. But isn't it interesting that in the midst of a storm, Jonah's identity is revealed? That, this, that he acknowledges, I am a Hebrew, I belong to God's people, I fear the Lord, meaning I worship the Lord, I follow him, he is my God, this is where I belong. It's in the midst of that high-stress situation that he is exposed. We know who he really is, what his identity really is. My friend, uh, pastor at Salem Free Church here in Florissant, Rick Shoup, uses this analogy for the Christian life. He says, our Christian life is like a sponge, it's like a sponge. You know what's in it only when you squeeze it, right? Often you can't tell. I'm talking about like a kitchen sink sponge, right? Often you don't know what it's full of until you squeeze it. And then all sorts of surprises, right? You realize there are pieces of raw hamburger in my sponge here. This is not good. You don't know that until you squeeze it. And sometimes you squeeze it and it's just nice, clean, soapy water. And so our identity is revealed right in the midst of this high-stress, stormy situation where we finally realized who we are. And when all those circumstances are pressing against you, when you're hurting, you finally say, I am a Christian. I belong to this God. I fear the Lord who made everything and who redeemed my soul. If a storm is squeezing you today, what would come out? Who are you? What's your identity? The second thing that is exposed about Jonah is not only who he is and his identity, but also how miserably he failed to follow God's will. The mariners know. Every time I read the mariners, I think about the Seattle mariners. I know this is baseball season, and I was going to make a joke about Alex Rodriguez and Felix Hernandez and... Randy Johnson, I had to look up some names for this. 
I'm sorry. If you like baseball, this may make sense to you. But every time I read the Mariners, I'm thinking, baseball Mariners. But these guys, they're the pagan sailors. They actually act more like believers than Jonah does. It's a great irony in this, in this passage that they do what Jonah is supposed to do, and Jonah completely fails to do it. Like, for example, the pagans are praying. They're crying out to their gods while Jonah is asleep. He's not, he's not engaging with God. The captain is concerned for his crew, but the Christian is asleep. The sailors are hesitant to throw Jonah overboard. Remember, they're rowing hard. They're trying to avoid this one action that they know they have to take by getting rid of Jonah. And yet they know that Jonah is the reason for the storm. They're struggling with sacrificing Jonah when he seems to be completely at peace waiting for them to make that decision. Now, at the end of the storm, the heathens worship, and now they're worshiping the Lord, making vows and bringing sacrifices to him, to the Lord of heaven and earth, Jonah's God, who delivered them from the storm. But the believer is still refusing to follow God because he might forgive heathens. It's an amazing irony in this passage. This is so rich to, to show us just this, this Bible-believing, moral, religious person completely not getting what all the heathens are getting at this point. Perhaps the greatest irony is in verse 6. The captain finds Jonah sleeping and says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God, perhaps the God who will give a thought to us that we, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, he says exactly the same words that God said to Jonah in the beginning of the chapter. Arise, call out. This is amazing that a pagan sailor is speaking almost on God's behalf to Jonah, and Jonah refuses to hear him. And Jonah's reason for rejecting God's words, arise and go call out against Nineveh, he's refusing because he's afraid that God might, in his mercy, spare the people of Nineveh, which is exactly what the captain is saying. He's saying, arise and call out that maybe God would give a thought to us and, and spare our lives. And Jonah knows, yeah, that's kind of what God does, and I don't want to have any, any part of that. That's why he's running. Isn't it amazing that God puts this, this rebellious prophet right where he is trying to, to avoid? He's running away because he doesn't want to go to this pagan city in fear that they might be spared by God. And so God puts him in a ship full of pagans who all get delivered by God who is gracious. Isn't that amazing? Now, what does it tell us? It tells us that God is still pursuing Jonah. Yes, he cares about the mariners, and he cares about Nineveh, but he cares about Jonah. He cares about this Bible-believing, rebellious prophet. The irony of this passage is not just funny, but is very, very convicting to us. Friends, when an unbeliever calls a believer to prayer which is exactly what's happening here. The captain is saying, wake up, pray for us. But the believer is sleeping, right? When an unbeliever calls a believer to prayer, it is not a good day 
for the church. An old commentary on Jonah has a chapter that is, that is titled, The World Rebuking the Church. That's how that commentator took this whole passage, is the world rebuking the church. And that is exactly what's happening. An unbeliever comes to the prophet of God and says, pray for us, pray, but he's not praying, he's sleeping. When an unbeliever has a better grasp on who God is, that God is gracious and that he might spare our lives, if an unbeliever has a better grasp on who God is than a believer, it's not a good day for the church. When an unbeliever loves their neighbor better than a believer, which is what's happening here, the captain is more concerned about the lives of the people in the ship than Jonah is. That is not a good day for our church. I'm talking about church in general. I'm talking about, in general, the community of Christians. If unbelievers are rebuking us and saying, you guys should be praying. You know, there's an old story about an English criminal who was who was receiving the last rites from a priest before he was going to go to the gallows and be executed for his crimes. And the priest came, and the priest was reading the Bible to him. And as the priest was reading about Jesus and Jesus saying, I am the resurrection of the life, he was reading it uh, in such an emotionless way, in such a just, I just want to get through it, that's my job, I have to do it, and I have other things to do that the criminal said, do you, do you really believe this, what you're reading to me, that, that Jesus is the resurrection, that if I believe in Jesus, that I could be saved, that I could avoid hell, not just, not just the temporary ills of this world, but hell itself? And the, the priest said, of course, I, I believe it. Yeah, it's, I'm a priest. Of course I believe it. And the criminal said, if I, had, if I believed only half of what you believe, he said, I would crawl on my knees to Ireland so that one person would be saved. This is the world rebuking the church. The world coming to the church and saying, if you guys really believe it, why are you not praying? Why are you not witnessing? Why are you not changing your community for God? Isn't it amazing that Jonah is asleep and the captain has to wake him up? Why is he sleeping? How is he able to sleep anyway? Now, there are a couple options here. I'll give you two options and tell you where I land on this, though I'm not totally sure. One option, maybe he's just so arrogant that he just assumes that God would protect him. No matter what happens, he is completely safe, and God is totally going to take care of him. Might as well take a nap. Or maybe another option would be maybe he's just so exhausted from running away from God, that he is just simply collapses. Now, the modern analogy to this is when you're in an airplane, right, and the oxygen masks drop down. Who's sleeping on that plane, right, is the question. Nobody's sleeping. The only people who seem to be sleeping are people who pass out because they need oxygen, (laughs) which is why you need to get it first for yourself before you help other people. This is (laughs) just good information for us. I think that's what's happening. So I, I land on the second option. I think Jonah's just so exhausted. He's just passing out. He, doesn't, he, do, he can't handle it. But whatever you think the reason is why he's sleeping, the biggest issue here is that he is, in fact, sleeping. All that is going on, all the people are praying to their gods, but the one person 
on board who knows the Lord of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land and can ask God to calm the storm, is actually asleep. While the heathen sailors cry out to their pretend deities, the prophet of the living God is asleep. This is where another rebuke comes to us. Sometimes when a storm is raging, the church is found to be asleep. I'll give you one example, and again, going back to Rose Shannon's permission to push you, I will. When Michael Brown was, was shot, it was three years ago, almost four years ago now, in Ferguson, we realized that the church was asleep. Now, whatever you think happened, okay, I'm not arguing details. However you think the media may have covered it poorly or the government may have responded poorly or the community mishandled it, I'm not arguing about any of that. But what I'm saying is when a crisis happened, when a storm was raging, we realized that the church was not handling those issues well. And whatever you may believe about who's right, who's wrong, and how to solve this issue, there's no question, friends, there's no question that the church does not have a good track record of dealing with racism. There's no question about that. And so when a crisis happens, when a storm comes, we are often found to be asleep. Ferguson event exposed the segregation and division and prejudice in the church as well as in the culture. The world rebuking the church. Now, good things are happening, I think, from that, from the reaction to the church. I think some of us woke up. Some of us realize that the church needs to be actively dealing with these issues. We need to be involved in our community. We need to be involved in the way the police is interacting with our community. We need to be part of that in some way. Now, we're not sure how to do it many times, but we see black and white churches getting together, and Chatham is part of that. We're seeing pastors talking to each other and saying, we were not involved in this and we should have been. We needed to be there. We need to be involved in these issues. We need to be involved in our community in this way. And so often a storm that finds the church asleep on a particular issue is also the same storm that wakes us up and makes us aware of what's happening and allows us to engage and allows us to explore and investigate what is happening that we need to be involved in so that the world would not rebuke the church. I only have a few minutes left, but this is the most important part of the sermon. We can talk about the storm, and we can identify with the storms of life. We can talk about the ship and say how I am caught in a storm and I'm suffering, and people around me are caught in my storms and they're suffering. We can talk about that, but what is the solution? What do we do with all of this? And we can't do anything with this unless we turn to the person who is able to calm the storm. Now, when the storm in our, in our story is raging, the mariners are crying out to their gods because they know that a greater captain is needed, a greater pilot is needed. See, they know that this is completely outside of their control. They have done everything they could. They've, they've thrown the car, cargo off the ship. They've lightened the ship. They're steering it. They're trying to do what they can, but they know that this is outside of their scope, that this is outside of their control. Somebody bigger has to come and calm that storm. Somebody bigger has to come and save their lives. 
This is why they're praying to their gods. Everybody to each god. That's why they find Jonah. That's why they investigate who's at fault and who is the person that can calm this storm. In our call to worship earlier in the service, we read about another storm and another ship and another man asleep in it. Look with me again at Matthew 8, verses 23 through 27. Matthew 8, 23. This is about Jesus. The circumstances are eerily similar to Jonah. When Jesus got into the boat, Matthew 8, 23, when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, and so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, another sleeper in another boat during another storm. They went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? What sort of man is this that can calm a storm like that? What sort of man is it? It's Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth. It's Jesus who made the sea and the dry land, who has complete control over his creation. But Jesus, get this, Jesus not only he can calm a local storm on a local lake or a local storm on the sea, as in the story of Jonah. Jesus can calm the disturbance of all creation by the rebellion of his children. This is an amazing thought that Jesus can calm a storm on the Lake of Galilee because he could not calm another storm. Like Jonah, he was hurled into the storm. And he did not rebuke the waves. He did not rebuke the wind then. Much like Jonah's sacrifice that calmed the sea, Jesus' sacrifice calmed God. Except, you remember, Jonah was waiting to be thrown into the sea, but Jesus hurled himself into the storm of God's wrath. When you think about storms and sea and oceans and the deep in Scripture, it is always a symbol of chaos and rebellion until you get to the book of Revelation where you have a glassy sea. Do you remember that? Now it's calm. Creation is at peace. Why? Because there was someone who went into the storm of God's wrath and by his sacrifice calmed it. Jesus said in John 10, verse 18, No one takes it from me, his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jonah was waiting to be thrown in, to be hurled in, but Jesus hurled himself into the cosmic storm of God's condemnation. He says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So when Jesus hurled himself into the chaos of God's judgment... He appeased God's wrath. Just like this sea in Jonah's story received what it required, a sacrifice of Jonah. So the sea of God's wrath received what it required, the sacrifice of God's Son. In Scripture, we read that Jesus is the propitiation 
of God's wrath. It's, it's the appeasement. It's the satisfaction of God's wrath. The sea received what it was seeking, and God received what he was seeking to be satisfied and to remove our guilt. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are utterly safe in the midst of any storm. You see, the one who calmed the greatest storm of all, God's wrath, is now able to come into our storms, our local storms of life, and calm them. Jesus hurled himself into the storm and became an anchor for us. In every high and stormy gale, we just sang that a few, a few I was going to say a few hours ago, a few minutes ago, we sang that in every storm, high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. The anchor that holds in whatever storm you are dealing with right now is the Jesus who hurled himself into the storm of God's wrath. And now, now, if you have that anchor, whatever storm you're experiencing in your life, all the storms of your lives are meant to now bring you back to God. Because God has hidden life in his son's death. And so now every storm is not meant to destroy you, but it's meant to bring you back to God and transform you. Till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll forever from the sky, hold me fast. That's the prayer of the Christian. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. The hand that was pierced for us, and through that piercing calmed the great cosmic storm of God's wrath, is now the hand that holds us and helps us stand in whatever storm you may be dealing with this morning. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. That's a prayer that is always answered by God because the greatest storm is already calm. The surface of the sea of God's wrath is, in fact, glassy and calm. We are safe in any storm of life, whether caused by us or caused by others, because the big storm, the storm of God's wrath, the storm of God's judgment, the storm of God's vengeance has been calmed by Jesus. Let me close with these words from a hymn. As I say them, please identify with them. I hope you feel it. I hope this is something that is meaningful to you because you are a Christian and your identity has been revealed in a storm because you realize that for all your failures, God still is pursuing you and he will not let you go. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, and trials have come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, my sin, right? Your sin, all the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole. There's no part of your sin that has not been covered by his blood. Is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And we end by saying, it is well. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul.
Amen.